Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that comes fully loaded with hotties. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No sorry, bitch. That was perfect. (laughs) Speaking of hotties, today we have Kellen... Adelaide and Ozzy. And, oh my god, oh, I just sorry. literally started to say and Ozzy. I don't know why I did that. I feel like we should keep it. Like that's, that's a great fucking priceless. When I normally just like forget to say it, or like the time where I didn't say and and then it was just like Ozzy. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Silence. Uh we're like really on one today. Um Gotta be. and yeah, and we um during this episode today are going to be talking about gun violence in the United States. Yeah, and as it's probably obvious with the nature of this episode, it may go without saying, but we'd like to give a content warning about violence based on class, race, sexuality, and gender. Yes. Um it's gonna be a heavy one. Um, no really getting around that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're just going to kind of be talking about like the state of gun violence, like where it's coming from, how it's happening, um, kind of what legal mechanisms are enabling it, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I just wanted to start out by giving us some sort of like background on what the numbers look like. So earlier this month, Pew Research put out a piece that brought together and analyzed the most recent gun violence data we have, which comes from the year 2020. And I just wanted to read some of that for y'all. So um, in 2020, 54% of all gun related deaths in the United States were suicides. And I think that's important to keep in mind because we're going to be talking a lot about (laughs) the other one, which is murders. Um, But it is worth noting that actually the majority of people who die by gun death um, are people who are um, killing themselves. Um, The Pew Research piece uh, noted that 43% um, of gun-related deaths were murders, according to the CDC. And if you're like, that doesn't add up, that's because the remaining gun deaths that year were either unintentional, involved law enforcement, or had undetermined circumstances. And I do want to note that they include, quote, involved law enforcement um, as its own category and not murder, murder, which mm. yeah is um, <laughs> hilarious. A like, choice. It's almost called like Sus. other, and it's like hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, it's also worth noting that nearly eighty percent of murders in twenty twenty involved a firearm. So the vast majority of murders happening in the United States are being done with guns. Um, the 45, over 45,000 total gun deaths in 2020 were by far the most on record, representing a 14% increase from the year before, a 25% increase from five years earlier, and 43% increase from a decade prior, which is huge. And gun murders in particular have climbed sharply in recent years. Um, the gun murders that took place in 2020, which is almost 20,000 gun murders, were the most since at least 1968 when we have really started keeping track of this sort of thing. Um, And that total of murders represented a 34% increase over the year before, 49% increase over five years, and 75% increase over the last 10 years. Normal. Um, Yeah. And the, the number of gun suicides has also risen in recent years and is near its highest point on record. Um, The final thing to note is that while 2020 was the highest total number of gun deaths in U.S. history, um, the nation's population continues to grow. So in a per capita basis, um, we are still much higher than we were like since at least 30 years ago, but are below the peak um, of per capita gun deaths, which occurred in 1974. So, you know, a big theme of this this. Uh, episode I think is going to be history regressing um, going back in time to a worse time and uh, yeah that's kind of what's going on here 
So anyway, I, I bring all this up just to say that this is obviously a really serious problem. Um, it's one that a lot of other countries simply don't deal with. And yeah, today we're just going to get into some of the various facets of gun violence in the United States in particular. Totally. Um, since this episode relates to your new job, Kellen, I was thinking before we get into that, we could talk a little bit about that. Um so I just wanted to ask if you wanted to share a little bit about the job and like the mission of Everytown for Gun Safety. Yeah. So I've been working as a historical consultant for this group called Everytown for Gun Safety and specifically for their Second Amendment legal team. Um, and they hired a historian for reasons and specifically a historian of early America for reasons that will become obvious once we talk about the Bruin Supreme Court case, which is really the impetus for my hiring. Um and I will say, I'll talk about this a little bit more later when we get into some of this, the cases that we're going to trace sort of as they move through the U.S. judicial system. I want to note that I don't work on like criminal cases. So none of the work that I'm doing is like work that's trying to like put people in jail. Mm -hmm. um, right. But it is work that is trying to like prevent, uh, like keep rules in place. For example, like one of the things I worked on was the the keeping in place the rule that prevents you from bringing like an AR-15 into Central Park. Um, and like, I know my research was important and like that rule staying in place under some recent um, challenges in the courts. So um, yeah. No big deal, they... just a fucking badass. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> they, they do different, there are different parts of the organization that do different things. And like, I have different feelings about sort of different parts of it um which we can i think definitely get into um but like the overall goal is to reduce gun gun violence um and to not necessarily make it like illegal to have guns no <laughs> you can't have like a major nonprofit in the united states that's trying to do that even if you wanted to um but much more trying to make sure that like you know you're not trying to, to bring down the number of like mass shootings, the amount of like intimate partner violence that's done with guns, just like some of the what liberals and centrists like to call common sense gun reform, basically. Yeah. And I feel like we'll we'll get into this more a little bit, but like a lot of those things are the things that are most under threat right now with this ruling. So um, it's really important work. Um, I also wanted to ask just because I'm also someone who has worked in a nonprofit um, and like while I was doing that, I felt like it was always this balance between what I was doing for work with this bigger organization that like needs to put up a more palatable public face so that it can do the really important work that it does because like because of the horrible fucked up way the U.S. works, we have almost no welfare. Nonprofits have to provide all of it. In order to be mm. able to do that, they have to beg for government funding. In order to be able to do that, they have to have relationships with politicians. And so it's like, there are literally just things that they cannot do without risking, yeah. like, lives, literally, in some cases. Um, but then, like, also, there was my private life and, like, my own political mm. activism that could be and was much more radical and, like, that was also true for many of my coworkers, and that did not mean that we couldn't work on like both of those kinds yeah. of paths at the same time. Um, but I guess I just feel like there were some challenges that came with that, and I know like a lot of nonprofit employees struggle with this because nonprofit employees yeah. often are more radical. Um, so I guess I'm just curious if that's something you've been navigating at all, and like if there's any advice that you would give to people who might be in a similar position, kind of like thinking through these things. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Ozzy. Um, it's so funny that you asked this. I literally was on the phone for an hour last night, like of my own time with one of the lawyers on the team um, who he's like a young guy who is like really involved in like he's he's got a lot of really interesting thoughts and even like very radical thoughts about the way to like push sort of like the legal directions that arguments could take that are like it, it's kind of it's interesting to me to see like legal radicalism because it wasn't something I knew very much about you know like people who are like trying to come up with really creative and like boundary pushing things that you can say in a courtroom is really interesting mm -hmm. um and some of it was stuff that he was like well like you know I'm a lower level employee I wouldn't be able to like 
do this where I am right now, but it's like stuff that I'm thinking about. And, um, you know, I have another friend on uh, the team who has like Ruth Bader Ginsburg earrings. And so there's just like different levels, you know, of like <laughs> totally. sort of the way as, as you would expect, probably um, of the different levels of radicalism, different levels of like, you know, understanding of like how the system works. Um, I will say that like, I came to this because of my history training that became very important in the aftermath of Bruin again, which, which I will explain very shortly. Um, and gun violence prevention is like something I think is important, but it's never been like a passion of mine specifically. Um, and I think that actually has made it easier to deal with some of the inconsistencies you know i think that if i were working on something that is like something i had been working on before in like a different arena like for example if i were dealing with um you know laws about um like sexual violence and harassment in the workplace or just like where it's like okay i had been approaching this issue from kind of an outsider's position and now right. I'm kind of approaching it from an insider's position I think that would be a lot more difficult um to stomach um right but no, because that totally makes sense yeah and so sort of the the fact of my lack of sort of for knowledge or not knowledge but just like I, it's not just some it's just not something I had approached really before. yeah it's not like your big issue necessarily yeah exactly and like and your so activism I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that makes it easier I don't know what it would look like if it were something else but I can imagine it would probably be more frustrating the other thing is I love the work that I'm doing which is basically just research and like doing historical research and I'm actually not that involved in the final product or like the strategy which is I think actually where some of the bigger conversations have to be had about like how much are we tempering you know our position and the the arguments that we're making and I get to kind of just like lay out a bunch of information for the people who make those big decisions so that also means that I'm not in the frustrating spot that maybe some other people are um so like for me my my advice would be find a job doing something that wasn't your passion before and don't do don't be the guy that has to make the hard choices. Um, that's kind of a joke, but like it is what worked for me. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a really um, good strategy because like I was working <laughs> for an organization that did work that I like I was volunteering with them before mm. I started working there. Oh, and so wow. it was a lot harder to like separate my activism from my job. Um, yeah. 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 Which I ultimately like I just decided like I could not do that and it yeah. didn't work for me um yeah but, I get that yeah. I one of the um lawyers on the team the one who has the the um RBG earrings I like actually love her to death she's a really close friend at this point she's how I got the job um but she is so passionate about it that she just she works like 20 extra hours a week some day some weeks and like just because she wants to and I'm like you're gonna burn yourself out you know like it's not sustainable um so it's tough for sure um I work as much as I get paid to work and no more but that's just me um As if I think should that's be. great advice. As work as much be. as you're paid to work and no more. It's wonderful <laughs> advice for anyone in any and situation. And even that is still exploitative as fuck. So I we, mean, yes, we're so protecting true. ourselves. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I wanted to to get us started actually talking about like this this legal landscape that is really disturbing and is probably going to make it even easier for some of these really violent acts to take place in the next few years which again this is not an uplifting episode and i'm sorry um so the way that i think it makes sense to start is with the supreme court case that i've been referring to as bruin which is actually called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, uh, or V. Bruin. Um, And that 
um, was decided uh, this past year. The ruling came out, I think, the day after the Dobbs decision. So it actually didn't get as much press as it might have otherwise because it came, they dropped it, I think, the day after they dropped the ruling that um, overturned Roe v. Wade. But if you missed it, which you would be forgiven normal for hell, done, Normal hell. Normal hell. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Um <laughs> The basic gist of the case is this. So New York City has a law that requires people who apply for a concealed carry permit to show what they call proper cause in order to receive it. And proper cause here means basically that there's some reason that you specifically, as opposed to like the general public, need to have a gun that you can carry with you concealed at like any given time. Um And the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association challenged this rule. And in a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court found it unconstitutional. And like, for the sake of this episode, so that we can get into some other stuff, I'm not going to go into too much about like the reasoning behind that. Um, It was bad. But what made it especially bad was that this ruling essentially established a new test In order for a gun regulation now, as of this past summer, to be considered constitutional, it now must follow the U.S.'s, quote, historical tradition of firearm regulation, which essentially means that if it wasn't regulated in the early U.S., the conservatives on the court think that it cannot or should not be regulated now. Um, There are like a bunch of unresolved questions that remain, like what does early America even mean? How far back can we go to find a historical tradition? Like the New York City law that was overturned was well over 100 years old. So like that's historical, one would think. Um, But legal experts are now saying that we either have to go back to the signing of the Constitution or the implementation of the Reconstruction Amendments for it to be considered early America. So there's an ongoing question of like 1789 or 1868, I believe is like two different interpretations of this ruling. And obviously a lot of people on the gun control side are pushing for 1868 because at least there were some more regulations since then. Um, But yeah, if you're thinking to yourself as you hear this, that this could open up a whole host of issues because like the justices are looking back to a time when, for example, only property white men could vote and black people could be bought and sold um, in order for them to justify their modern regulations. Well, you would be correct. Um, there are a whole host of challenges that are being brought in the wake of Bruin that specifically rely on the lack of protections for a whole host of people in early America. And um, we're going to get into a couple of those examples now. Um, Yes. So first we're going to talk about this case, United States v. Rahimi. Um, So this is a case where police had a warrant to search this man's home, in part because they apparently thought that he, quote, fired multiple shots in the air after his friend's credit card was declined at a Whataburger restaurant, unquote. Unfortunately, (laughs) that is relatable to me. But anyway, literally same. (laughs) (laughs) So the police show up, they're like looking for this guy that shot at a Whataburger. They find guns in his house. um, And his ex-girlfriend had a restraining order against him for violent behavior towards her. The opinion wasn't exactly clear about what he did to get this restraining order, but um, he had one. So basically, the law said that if you have a restraining order from an intimate partner, then you're not allowed to have guns. But the police found guns in his house and arrested him, and he was convicted of the crime of possessing a firearm while under a domestic violence restraining order. Um, so he appealed this decision, his legal team appealed this decision, um, and the Fifth Circuit, which is like the level below the Supreme Court in this case, um, decided earlier this month that that law was unconstitutional. So you can't have this rule that says getting a domestic violence restraining order means that you can't own a gun. Um, and this was, yeah, um, this was directly because of this Bruin framework that Kellen was talking about. Um, so basically applying this new, I guess it's like, it's a more lenient standard about guns, but it's like a stricter standard towards gun regulations. Um, the court decided that you can't remove someone's second amendment right to own a gun 
through a civil proceeding. So the domestic violence order in this case wasn't criminal. It was civil. Basically, this means Rahimi wasn't convicted of a crime, but a court did decide that he posed a clear threat to his ex, and that's why they gave this order. Um, And the Fifth Circuit also overturned Rahimi's prison sentence related to the crime, although from the opinion, it sounds like he's still going to be incarcerated for quite a while due to other convictions that he has. Um, So honestly, when I was first reading about this, I felt a bit conflicted about it because it's like anything else, um, you know, related to the legal system in this country. Domestic violence orders are disproportionately issued for men of color than for any other group. Um, And that's because of the ways that these laws get used very intentionally by prosecutors to, like, criminalize and get into the system as many black and brown men as they can. Um, And, like, I really don't think that the police should be able to arrest you, period, obviously. But also, I do think it would be a lot better if the police couldn't arrest you for, like, not actually doing anything, but just, like, having a thing in your house or like drinking or whatever while on probation or parole or under a restraining order. Um, It's kind of like the crime of illegal border crossing where it's like the crime is not actually crossing the border. The crime is having been forced to sign a piece of paper that said you wouldn't cross the border. Um, And that's like, unfortunately, the way that these laws are often used is like a total front for just continuing to re-arrest anyone who has any type of conviction or like interaction with law enforcement previously. Um, But all of that said, there are obviously times where this law has saved people's lives, and I think we should be very concerned about how this will impact especially wealthy white gun owners who have committed domestic violence. Um, You know, like, this guy is not really, like, he's not even going to get out of jail because of this decision. This isn't really going to benefit, like, the people who are most hurt by these laws. Um, And frankly, of all the really problematic laws out there that remove rights from people who have been convicted of a crime or, um, you know, in this case, had a restraining order against them, like being able to own a gun after your ex says you assaulted her is really not at the top of my list. I'd much rather we worked on like the right to have a job, the right to live literally anywhere in your city, the right to have or not have children which are all real things that the state takes away from people convicted of crimes. Um, And those are way more important and fundamental to most of our everyday lives than the right to own a gun. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Ozzy. Like, I think that this is like one of the really sticky aspects of all of this kind of stuff. Um, I also just wanted to put in a quick note about like the civil versus criminal issue that came up Mm -hmm. in the ruling. Um, because they didn't say like oh if you are convicted of domestic violence you're allowed to do this you're allowed to have a gun it's just that because you weren't convicted but you had a restraining order basically saying that a civil court ruling can't keep you from having a gun um it is worth noting perhaps that it's much easier for victims of domestic violence to get rulings in civil courts than it is for them to get rulings in criminal courts because the standard, the burden of proof is different. Um, so like in one example of a very famous case, OJ Simpson was not convicted of the murder of his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, but was held legally responsible for her death by a civil court that essentially was like, we know that you murdered her, even though you weren't convicted of right. it. Um, and so one of the sort of only way is that the U.S. court system protects people who have experienced, like, violence, um, and especially intimate partner violence, family violence, all those kinds of things, is through restraining orders. Um, And so these rules, part of the reason they existed was as an acknowledgement of the ways that the criminal court systems like continue to fail people um Mm -hmm. but we know that the criminal court system isn't made to like protect poor brown women from you know intimate partner violence it's to protect property and propertyed people so none of that is surprising um and i definitely don't think it takes away from the point that you're making about how messy this is like that a lot of like gun charges exist to put people in jail when police, for example, had already decided they were going to search their car and try to find something. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful context. Thank you. Um, I guess, like, overall, I feel like my feelings about this decision 
is not so much about like the literal legal decision made it's more about the legal reasoning that was used to get there um and the fact that i guess to me it seems to signal that the bruin decision will specifically be used to remove like the most common sense least objectionable gun restrictions first um i don't know it's not like we're going to like can people with mental illnesses own guns which is like something that is restricted in some cases and i think is like a more complicated topic people might think it's more worthy of reconsideration this is literally can people who have almost certainly committed domestic violence own guns um like most domestic abusers never receive any legal consequences for their actions most Mm -hmm. people that are like convicted or have these types of orders they have done something we can argue (laughs) about whether the criminal system is a good response to that i would say no but (laughs) you know like um but like that it it is like i guess just to me a more sort of like clear-cut issue Mm -hmm. where like i just don't have any faith that the bruin decision will be used in a way that will actually support like the, those goals that I mentioned earlier of like yeah. not just randomly arresting people for living their lives. Um, yeah. It seems like it's going to be used to very quickly erode a lot of the very few legal protections that like more vulnerable people have against gun mm-hmm. violence. Um, so I also just wanted to say that a really haunting amount of this opinion covers the law in like the literal <laughs> 1700s, which I think is just a great sign that nothing good is going on here. Like there's like pages devoted to like what did like the commonwealth of massachusetts have in their gun laws and it's like (laughs) why are we talking about that that's so irrelevant to like the technology and norms of life today um so i found that very upsetting personally i mean i feel like that's generally like an issue with the u.s legal system is like the fact that a our constitution has never been updated like it has in other countries (laughs) and also like there's just this like obsession with our founding times right yeah and that is like the prob the problem with Bruin is that it says essentially that that history is all that matters now um and so yeah so I want to talk about another case that's similar to the one that Ozzy described which is United States v uh Perez Gallon or Perez Gallon which was heard in the western district of Texas in November so um, in this situation, a man named Litson Antonio Perez Gallan was found in possession of a firearm despite having a restraining order against him for domestic abuse. So this is a similar situation to the one we were talking about with the Rahimi case. Um, but I wanted to talk about it as well because a judge, the judge who decided the case, um, was even more like mask off in the way that he discussed his reasoning um, than in the Rahimi case. And it bodes poorly in just the ways Ozzy described. I also want to note that this case was decided um, like the day before I went to go talk to a law school class about the Bruin ruling. And the consensus at the time, because this was decided in November and the Rahimi case is slightly more recent than that, the consensus at the time was like the the ruling in Perez-Gayan will not stand. Like, there's no way that a higher court would have this, like, take this reasoning up. It's just a way too out there reading of the Bruin decision. Um, and then the Rahimi case came along and everyone was like, just kidding. Okay. Anyway, so... In um, the Perez-Gayan case, the judge found that a history of domestic abuse, period, should not prevent someone from having a firearm. So this is not about the like civil versus criminal distinction that was being made in Rahimi. This is simply about domestic abuse should not preclude someone in principle from owning a gun. And the specific reasoning for this is- Just so fucked. Sorry. And and the reasoning is, quote, the historical record does not contain evidence sufficient to disarm domestic abusers. And the logic here literally is that the founding fathers did not care about violence against women. And so we legally cannot care about it either, at least insofar as we're talking about the context. It's like, stop sucking the dicks of the founding fathers. (laughs) They're dead. They're so dead. (laughs) They're dusty. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so just like as a reference, I um, to this this end, um, I, borrowing from one um, lawyer 
this is just like not related to gun gun rights, but but a, a paper about like the way that um, these kinds of issues were handled in early American courts. Quote. The Anglo-American common law originally provided that a husband, as the master of his household, could subject his wife to corporal punishment or chastisement so long as he did not inflict permanent injury upon her. Note that there is a permanent injury thing there, but I think the the premise is that since no one has yet been killed, it's fine. Right. Um, Also, mental trauma is permanent for many, many people anyway. Right. Well, that's not something that the founding fathers would have acknowledged. Right. Of course. Um, I mean, I'm just talking about our utopia where we actually take care of people. (laughs) No, completely, completely. And yeah, I want to acknowledge again that like everything Ozzy talked about is really important to consider. Like we have talked on this podcast before about the ways that gun control laws are frequently used as a pretext to sweep, especially men of color up and put them in prison. I think we can also acknowledge that at the same time, guns absolutely should not be in the hands of domestic abusers. And like we know, for example, that women in violent homes are five times more likely to be murdered if a gun is present in the house. And literally almost two thirds of women killed by intimate partners are killed with guns. So it it, it is a deadly situation. Exactly. And ruin has made it possible for conservative judges to literally turn back the clock on protections for people in these very vulnerable very violent households so um that's kind of the state of things legally um and now that we've looked at like the legal landscape i think it's worth talking about like gun violence itself and the various ways that it is affecting americans um obviously part of what prompted this this episode is that there have been some high profile recent shootings um including especially the most recent one in michigan state and i just wanted to to acknowledge that um even though we still don't have that much information about exactly what motivated the shooting at this point so as of this recording it's been about a week and a half since um a godman shot eight students at michigan state university not a ton has come out about the motive um the man who committed the murders um, apparently killed himself also with his gun, um, but had no immediately apparent ties to the school. His guns were purchased legally, but were not registered legally um, for what that's worth. And um, we're you know still waiting to find out, I guess, more about the situation. But it is just another example of the ways that educational institutions, as one example, have been turned into spaces of just like absolute horror for a lot of americans yeah um woof (laughs) just fucking woof um because obviously we are so queer trans centric we did want to talk about the colorado springs club q shooting so because obviously this hits really close to home for all of us Um, On November 19th, 2022, a gunman wearing body armor and had an automatic weapon, AR-15 style rifle, attacked um, a queer nightclub in Colorado Springs. And this was on the eve of Trans Day of Remembrance, killing five people and injuring at least 25 and, you know, traumatizing everyone. Two Club Q patrons managed to disarm the shooter. I know Ozzy's going to get into that, but like literally no one greater than those two patrons. Um, And the shooter was a 22-year-old suspect with ties to an extremist family. Um, And while this tragedy was obviously truly horrific, as all these tragedies are, honestly, no one paying attention to the pulse of American politics was surprised by this event. Daniel Aston, Kelly Loving, Ashley Paw, Derek Rump, and Raymond Green Vance were enjoying community with their friends, families of origin, and chosen families when they were heinously murdered by this gunman who, like most of these motherfuckers, has a history of violence, as we've obviously stated above. Their deaths followed an unprecedented surge of anti-LGBTQ legislation, vile rhetoric from politicians and staff and media outlets, and threats against LGBTQ people by white supremacists who are 
who are encouraged by extremists on social media and, again, pundits within um, all mainstream media, basically. Yeah, um, and I just want to briefly mention here, like, as is the case in most mass shootings, especially, um, you know, violence that involves marginalized folks, the police did very little to help. Um, as Adelaide mentioned, the shooter was actually stopped and physically restrained by two patrons at the club. Um, one of them is a trans woman and the other is a cis guy, who, straight guy whose daughter's friend was performing in the drag show that night. And he was literally there to support his daughter's friend. So the only true ally. Um, his daughter's boyfriend, Raymond Green Vance, is one of the people who was killed that night. Um, it's so hard to imagine what that must have been like for both of them and standing up to someone armed with a gun who is literally trying to kill you and your friends and, like, also knowing that you're probably more generally standing in for, like, all queer and trans people since this seems to have been a series of murders motivated by hatred and transphobia and homophobia. Um, yeah, this is it, one of those ones where they're like, oh, we don't really know what the motive was, though. It's like, go, go right, fuck yourself. But it's like, I mean, I like I know. what the Right. Was. We we I know what the fucking motive was. That. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess it just it does seem fitting that uh, the police actually did very little to keep our communities safe in this case. It was other gay bar patrons who actually stepped up and protected their community. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about police gun violence later but yeah just just wanted to note that like this They're is cowards and fuck yeah up. yeah i mean like obviously that scene of parents going into the school instead of um the police at right the school exact shooting in texas is like it's, yes. it's so evident of the complete uselessness of the entire police state um so obviously we've done a lot of episodes on the ways queer and trans rights are being stripped away in the United States. But it is worth a brief recap of this because when this is the tone of our nation paired with the easy access to um, automatic firearms, we cannot be surprised by these issues and we aren't surprised by these issues. And we're fucking exhausted and we're scared at this point. Um, there is a direct line from these dangerous words and behavior to the violence against queer people, queer and trans people. Um, GLAD, which is the Gay and Lesbians, Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and other queer-led organizations, have a lot of these receipts to connect the dots. So, um, in 2022, uh, more than 300 anti-LGBTQ laws were proposed, drafted, and funded by longtime anti-queer and trans groups. In this year, 2023 alone, it's uh, February, uh, over 120 have already been proposed. Politicians, their staff, and enablers smeared queer people and their allies with false repulsive slurs with a 406% increase of slurs online. And bills like the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, which we've discussed at length, are obviously like very connected to all of this. Um, in 2022, GLAD documented 124 uh, attacks against drag events in 47 states, including armed white supremacists terrifying children at drag story hours and the firebombing of a donut shop. Media Matters counted 170 segments in a three-week span on Fox News with anti-transgender fear-mongering and disinformation, including the lie that trans kids, quote, have been led to where they are by adult predators, unquote, which is obviously that, like, you know, it's very uh, a mainstream lie mythology. Uh, more than 2,500 books were challenged or banned uh, between September 2021 to September 2022, the majority had queer and trans characters and queer and trans authors. In recent news, a new bill that just passed in committee in Missouri would force detransition on incarcerated trans adults as well as trans youth. Like, what the actual fuck? People who have committed violent crimes against their domestic partners are allowed to get guns, but like you're right. just you're just yeah. in jail. We're gonna like, like strip literally all your fucking rights away. One of these things has literally never killed anyone. One has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Like it's just yeah. The math isn't mathing, <laughs> as Zoe would say. Shout out. <laughs> 
Um, so obviously, enemy of the pod, Ron DeSantis, a.k.a. the governor of Florida, just introduced a bill called the, quote, Reverse Woke Act, which, like, first of all, what a fucking name. This bill would hold employers accountable for the detransition of any person who receives gender-affirming care coverage for the rest of their life, potentially deterring coverage for many trans adults in Florida. All that to say, gun violence is an extension of the systemic violence that queer and other marginalized communities face every single fucking day in this hell country. Um, so briefly, just to kind of like give us a moment, I wanted to share and I got their consent, a poem that one of our friends of the pod, J.D. Haggerty, who's an incredible poet, um, shared with our Discord community recently that is very related to all of this. It's called Trans as in Fuck You. We become relatives when your eyes open and ancestors when they shut. My politic is whatever lets my sisters thrive. Whatever lets my brothers become fathers, whatever keeps my family alive, intact, ongoing. A legacy, history of power coming for our throats. We sidestep and subsist, but deserve so much more. They try to make us canaries when we are birds of paradise. Pull us like weeds, yet we grow in the cracks of their structures. I am holding my roots in the earth for you. I reach to the sky to be seen. When you are low, raise your chin. Eyes to the sky, anywhere you see me, I will build you a home. There will be honey and flowers. There will be dancing. And none of us will ever again have need to fear. Thanks for sharing that, Adelaide. We really appreciate it. For sure. Um, I think something that came up in the discussion of like the Club Q shooting and also just like the um, general like, you know, like the list of of sort of legislative um, acts that are coming for for queer and trans people, it becomes evident that like the state itself is obviously part of the problem (laughs) and is actively endangering many of the people who live in this country um and so i I did want to take a moment to note that like much of the gun violence specifically that occurs in this country is actually executed by agents of the state and specifically police so obviously there are so many cases where this happens including many that we will probably never learn about um but I wanted to highlight a recent one. So just a few days before this recording, a white police officer in Louisiana was charged with the shooting death of Antonio Bagley, um, a 43-year-old black man. Um, Bagley was unarmed and running away from police officers when he was shot and killed on February 3rd in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, Bagley's relatives have also filed a $10 million lawsuit against the um, officer who fatally shot him. Um, But as I mentioned, he's also being now tried in court um, criminally. And in the words of the family's lawyer, quote, flight, meaning um, Bagley's running from the cops. Flight does not mean shoot to kill. Flight does not mean you are the judge, jury and executioner. And that's what happened. That was what happened in this case. And it is an incident we see far too often in the state. It's an incident we see far too often around this country. And indeed, Bagley is just one of a number of Black Americans who have been shot by police officers over the last several years. Um, The list of high-profile murder victims includes men like Bagley, but also women and even children. Um, You know, of course, that includes Philando Castile, Breonna Taylor, Alton Sterling, Tamir Rice, and Mike Brown, who's shooting death at the hands of police in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, helped launch the modern Black Lives Matter movement. Um... And, you know, I think this is a good sort of point to transition into talking about sort of more about the the structural elements of this violence, um, you know, who is doing the actual fucking killing, um, because even when it's not police, a lot of times it advances the, um, you know, same ends as what police violence does and it at the very least is affected by sort of the same structural um elements in our society yeah the same like hierarchies of oppression for sure 
Um, yeah, and like people, and by people I mean like libs, mainstream. Like when there's these shootings, there's often this thing of like, you know, people like waffle about underlying uh, common denominators. And I just, you know, I, we, we would like to express to you that that's a load of bullshit. Um, first of all, 99%, 99% of all mass shootings in this country have been carried out by men. Like, we cannot solve the issue of gun violence in this country without understanding that the way we are socializing our boys is literally lethal. It's also worth noting that so many of these gunmen, obviously not all, obviously, obviously, uh, are young adults. Uh, And by young adult men, I mean under 27, because that's when your prefrontal cortex, which helps with reactions and decision making, is fully formed. And again, obviously, that's not where all the violence comes from, but it's enough of a pattern that we should take note Um, in the mass shooting that just took place in my own city in a goddamn grocery store. It was an 18 year old white man. I think the image of the white supremacist young man safely being taken into custody by police after he murdered the nine worshipers at the historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, is like seared into all of our minds. Yeah, no, it's it's um, a lot of really <laughs> violent young white men, um, although there are definitely older white men who are also, exactly. you know, doing a lot of these shootings, especially when we think about like intimate partner violence that's occurring mm-hmm. in households um, from husbands and fathers. But as Adelaide said, especially when it comes to what we call mass shootings, you know, the vast majority of the perpetrators are, are men. And that's not because like having a penis means that you... <laughs> um are more likely to have a gun um you're not whatever it, it, like this is not a bio essentialist argument right, of it's course. like Adelaide said it's about how we raise boys um and you know even when violence is directed outside the home like in a school a store or another public space um it's the violence is often beginning at the home. So, according to research that was put out by Every Town for Gun Safety, quote, in more than half of mass shootings over the past decade, the perpetrator shot a current or former intimate partner or family member as part of the rampage. Um, and this is another reason that preventing of users from carrying weapons can actually be a really important intervention because it may not only save the life of a partner or a child or a parent, but actually the lives of others outside the home as well right like if someone's Um, creating that violence they it's it's likely that they're not going to stop there right yeah yeah um and we talked earlier about domestic violence and how it's often accelerated by and made deadly by the presence of guns in a household and i just want to revisit that because i think it's worth talking more about and just add some more figures so according to that same research i just cited Women in the United States are 28 times more likely to die by firearm homicide than women in peer nations. And 92% of all women killed with guns in high-income nations are killed in the United States. Um, And part of that, of course, is that everyone is way more fucking likely to be murdered with a gun here than any comparable nation. But it's also because of the distinct ways that gun violence is tied into patriarchy and into patriarchal violence in the United States. Um, And it's also important to talk about the ways that um, mass shootings and also relatedly police violence, in addition to being gendered, are also racially motivated or are racist as well. Um, Adelaide brought up the shooting in the Black Buffalo neighborhood last year and the Charleston Church shooting as examples. And obviously those were both explicitly white supremacist um, acts of violence. And there are other forms of gun violence that disproportionately affect Black Americans as well, including the kind of quotidian violence that occurs in areas that have been effectively abandoned by the state. So according to a report by Brady, which is another gun violence prevention group, um, quote, gun violence alone reduces the life expectancy of Black Americans by four years. And Black Americans are twice as likely as white Americans to die from gun violence and 14 times more likely than white Americans to be wounded. Um, And in terms of why that happens, the same report really neatly tied together the ways that racist social policy creates the conditions for gun violence with this summary. 
quote, concentrated gun homicide is tied closely to urban poverty, which tracks inequality, which tracks segregation, which tracks race. Um, and it's also worth noting that this report also found that when white men are confronted with quote, poverty, unemployment, and single-parent households, they are more likely to commit homicide and other violent crimes than Black men confronting a similar set of structural impediments. Um, it's impossible, I think, to disentangle gun violence in America from white supremacy, from patriarchy, from homophobia and transphobia, and the rest. And Absolutely. so when you think about, like, the ways that capitalism and all of the sort of it's supporting systems of oppression like fuck us over this is another example i think and it's not the kind of thing that can be easily tackled there are certainly political interventions that can happen that you know can make this less likely and in you know countries where they don't have more guns than people for example a lot fewer people die of gun violence. Um, yeah. And that's not where we're at right now in the U.S. <laughs> sure is not. <laughs> but at the same time, like, we can't confront the issue of violence in our society as a whole without confronting all of the other forms of oppression that are tied up and inherent to capitalism. And so... I and just, just to... like, again, that obsession of our founding. Like, I just feel like that's <laughs> so ingrained in all this bullshit. It's like so, yeah. it's so insidious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, this has not been an uplifting episode. <laughs> but, but if you want to find up an uplifting space, <laughs> uh, you can go to our community uh, our discord you can read the poems uh, I also have started doing um, daily like collective readings for our discord where I give just like some some good vibes to get everyone through the day and you can so nice. uh, connect with that community via patreon.com slash season up the bitch um, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify because you can rate on Spotify now. And um, yeah, you can visit our website. We got some merch, seasonofthebee.com. But basically, just like be kind to each other and help stop all, all the oppression that you can because it really is not going – I mean like – Obviously, the work that Kellen is doing and the work that other people like Kellen are doing is so critical, but we also got to take it into the community hands and like protect oh, each other. <laughs> Nonprofits are Definitely. not going to save us. Right, right. The state is not going to save us. The fucking state will not save us. Um, so we got to. In be... case you thought our position as a podcast was nonprofits will save us, we'd like to clarify now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, I know this was heavy, but I feel like, you know, I love y'all so much and I'm just so grateful we were able to at least present this in as like as best of a way as we possibly could. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Love y'all. Love, love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch.